Just uh, the other day, I watched the movie Gladiator again. Has anybody seen the movie Gladiator? Russell Crowe, Swords and Sandals. Uh, it's definitely not a Christmas movie by, by any stretch. I saw it in theaters with uh, Zach Ford when I was in high school when it first came out, and I was blown away by it. The, the, the action sequence were thrilling and violent and unique, which was what I looked for in a movie when I was 16. It has superbly quotable lines. At my word, unleash heck. He doesn't say heck, but um, it vexes me. I'm terribly vexed. It's a great quote. We are merely shadows and dust, Maximus, shadows and dust. And probably the best one of all, what we do in this life echoes into eternity. Very cool. And it all appealed to me as a teenager. I'd rewatched it a couple times since that first viewing, but it's been at least a decade since I watched it again. And I definitely saw it with new eyes this time, partly because I'm a father now, and certain elements of the story stood out more to me than they had before. Um, the action sequences are still great, even though my, my taste for violence has waned in the years. The quotable lines, they're still fantastic. But new things came to life for me, as I mentioned, especially since I became a father. The opening sequence finds our hero, a Roman general named Maximus, winning a great battle for Rome against the barbarian tribes of Germania. Sorry, Horst and Petra. That's, that's your people. Yeah, Germania, those barbarians. Um, for his dignity and valor and integrity, Maximus is to be named Caesar, despite his protestations that all he desires in life is to be re- reunited with his wife and his son. This is all fictional, by the way. It's totally fabricated. But Then we meet the villain, Commodus, who is heir to his father's throne as emperor. And the reason we know that he's a villain is because he's so starkly contrasted to our hero, Maximus. When we meet Maximus, he is filthy and bloodied. He's fighting alongside the men, winning their trust and their loyalty by joining in the struggle with them. But when we first meet Commodus, he's being carried in this posh carriage. He's reclining on this couch thing. He's eating grapes. He's wrapped in furs. And he's weirdly flirting with his sister. It's very weird, strange. He has this air of entitlement and removal, which is only emphasized when when he meets up with Maximus on the battlefield and all the soldiers just kind of scorn him. They got no time for this, this, this phony. Eventually, because Maximus has won the heart of the emperor and the people, Commodus's right to the throne is supplanted by Maximus. Here's a spoiler alert. So if you are ever interested in watching the movie and don't want to know what happens, you can plug your ears. I won't be offended. Don't plug your ears because you're going to need to hear this. You're going to need to hear this, Sharon. Um, in a jealous rage, Commodus kills his father, the Caesar, in order to secure power for himself. He then orders Maximus murdered along with Maximus's family. But Maximus survives only to find his wife and only child crucified. So it's very brutal. Everything, everything that Maximus loves is destroyed. He winds up as a slave, fighting for his life as a gladiator, waiting for vengeance, unafraid to die because death would mean reunion for his family. Merry Christmas to all and to all a bloody fight. Um, And here's why I tell you the fictional story of Maximus, the disgraced general turned gladiator turned savior of Rome on the Advent Sunday when we celebrate love. The movie Gladiator is not a very loving and caring movie. Well, it's because in that Hollywood story, I see echoes of eternity to paraphrase the film. In the Advent season, we celebrate hope, peace, joy, and love, all represented in the arrival of Emmanuel. But in the birth narratives themselves, in Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, and John 1, those words don't come up 
very often. Some of them don't come up at all. The word hope and love don't appear in the NIV at all in those passages. Not once in five chapters worth of stories about God's arrival on earth is love explicitly mentioned. But even though the word love isn't used, the whole Advent season is quite obviously a celebration of God's love for us, his people, his children. You see that love, that familial sort of family love, all throughout the Christmas story. Joseph commits to remain faithful to his soon-to-be wife, and then commits to be the stepfather to the savior of humankind. It's a pretty big commitment, and Joseph is willing to make it. Elizabeth rejoices when Mary, who is her younger family member, arrives in the house. So there's that family celebration. Anna, the widow, who had the hope of a family die along with her husband some 65 years earlier, She's, she's 84, and she probably got married at around 14, and she was only married for seven years. So she had the hope of a family ripped away from her. But she's given the joy of beholding the infant Christ, whom she treats as her own long-lost child. So she gets, it's like a family reconciliation. And in the dark, endless weeping and Ramah, remember Herod? He wants to kill the baby Jesus, so he has all infants two years or younger in the area killed, this act of genocide. And in that weeping, the weeping of Ramah, we hear the grief of the women who had their tiny children destroyed by a power-hungry tyrant. And the impact of love is often felt deepest when it's ripped away from us. So in all of these elements of the Christmas story, we see family love. In each of these stories, the love of family shines through, and Jesus himself is central to all of it. Emmanuel, God with us, came among us as a baby with a mother to care for him, a cousin, John, who pronounced him to the people, and a father, a stepfather, who is willing to protect him and raise him as his own. So our Savior, our God, came to us. Emmanuel came to us in family, surrounded by family. The story of Jesus' arrival is steeped in the love of family and the love of community. Love is hovering over the birth narrative like the angels hovering over the shepherds. And like the angels, love proclaims the purpose of his arrival. Love has something to say, and this is what love pronounces. That the purpose of his arrival is this, to show love by becoming like us, to teach what loving God and neighbor looks like, that we may be reunited with the love of the Father. It was an act of love just for him to become like us. But then once he became like us, he spent his whole ministry career, if you will, showing us what love looks like how to love God, and how to love neighbor. And when those who responded positively to that message came to that love, then they were, re, re, they, were re, oh boy. they were reunited with the love of their father. That's hard to say. So anyway, let's go back to Gladiator for a second. What did I say was the big clue that Maximus was the hero and Commodus was the villain? right from the first moments the filmmakers introduce us to them. Maximus is obviously the hero because he experiences the struggles of the battle along with his soldiers. He is there leading the charge against the enemy, swinging swords with his subordinates, sweating and bleeding and suffering beside them, subjecting himself to death alongside those he is in command of. He is not above his people, even though he is. He becomes one with his people. He becomes like a common Roman troop, despite his power and his prestige, and he leads them to victory. Now, doesn't that sound an awful lot 
like my favorite Christmas verse of all time, John 1.14, which we read earlier, that says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He didn't stay up there. He came to us to fight and suffer. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He showed us how much he loves us by becoming like us, taking on flesh, and subjecting himself to death in order to lead us to victory. But the primary desire of Maximus the gladiator is not to win victory in battle. The main thrust of the story isn't for Maximus to win more battles and become a more powerful general. In fact, he grows weary of battles and bloodshed and war. What Maximus truly wants more than anything else is to be reunited with his family again. The true tragedy of the film isn't that Maximus never gets to be emperor. The tragedy is that he never gets to make his family complete again. Father, mother, child, together. He longs not for fame, nor fortune, nor even freedom. He longs for family. He doesn't want fame, or fortune, or freedom. All he wants is his family back. And as he sees it, a noble death is the ticket to be reunited in eternity with the ones he loves. I think we see a similar thing with Jesus. I mentioned that God showed his great love by sending his only son to us in weak and fallible human flesh. It's, it's a sacrifice of family. God willing to send his son to us, a family sacrifice, in order to teach us what love looks like so that we, God's children, might be properly reunited with our heavenly dad now and for eternity. Jesus' purpose isn't victory for himself. He could have achieved that. He could have come and forced every knee to bow. He could have pointed a sword at us and said, if you don't acknowledge me as Savior, you will die here and now. He could have done that, and he deserved to do that, but he didn't. Jesus' purpose isn't victory for himself. He was too much of a servant for that. His purpose was to glorify God by making us true children of God. He is the firstborn son who makes the love of the Father known to all the millions of children who would follow afterwards. We read about this earlier as well. In verses 11 to 13 of John 1, the apostle writes this. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. The arrival of Emmanuel received mixed reactions, to put it mildly. As it says at the beginning, some acknowledged him, recognized him, others didn't. But for those who did receive this child-turned-rabbi-turned-messiah, the reward is a beautiful gift of love. A reconciliation, reception as a child of the Almighty, adoption into the family of the King. For those who did recognize him, he gave them the right to become children of God. What a gift. Interesting, whereas John the Apostle connects the arrival of God's Son to our entry into God's family, the author of Hebrews connects the death of God's Son to our reception into the family. This is Hebrews 2, which I edited a little bit for clarity. It says, We now see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God should make Jesus perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death 
he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason, he had to be made like us, fully human in every way. When Jesus took on flesh, meaning became human, the risk was death. But it was a risk that he willingly took because of his great love for us. But in conquering death for each of us, he broke the power of the evil that enslaved us. Fear, selfishness, greed, that's all broken. He conquered that. And he shared his status with us, glorious children to our Heavenly Father. When he conquered death, he was like the big brother doing the hard stuff for the little siblings. And we are the little siblings. When, when he conquered death, he conquered death not just for himself, but all who would come after, all who belong to the family of God. That's us. He had to be made like us to strip away all the filth and brokenness and the shame of being human. To be human, to be flesh. There's nothing inherently sinful about like flesh. There's people who misinterpret that and think that anything that is fleshly and of this world is inherently evil. That's not what I mean when I say that. What I mean is to be human is to be fallen and broken and sinful. Period. There is no exception to that except one. And because of him, because of that exception, that one exception, the flesh is no longer inherently sinful and shameful. Now that he arrived among us and became like us, susceptible to suffering and death, we are purified by his sacrifice. As children of the king, we need not fear pain or persecution or powerlessness, even though all of those things are realities for us, pain and suffering, powerlessness. As children of the king, we need not fear those things. As children of the king, we are conquerors, but not conquerors like Maximus with all his military might. We are gladiators of love, weaponized by grace and compassion under the beautiful banner of Jesus' sacrifice, extending his glorious victory to the world around us. If we know his love, then we are called to engage in the battle. And as Paul makes clear, this is not a battle against other people. That's the mistake Many, many, many Christians and churches make is we think we need to battle the world and and win them over with rightness and morality. That's not what I see in Scripture, ever. If we know his love, then we engage in the battle in a different way. We cannot know the light of his love and then choose to live life in the dark instead. So there is a battle going on. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against those things which trip us up. It's against sinfulness. It's against corruption of everything that... Of Last week we talked about peace, life as it was intended to be. The battle that we're in is to return life to how it was intended to be. The only way we do that is not with force or might, but with love and grace, forgiveness. This is First John 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. So he begins by saying, our adoption to his family is cause for great celebration. But there's a warning attached. This is verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. The battle that we're engaged in, the weapons that we use, are weapons of love. And if we choose to sit out this battle, are we really children of the king? Admittance into the family of God is not free. The adoption papers are not free. 
It was paid for with the heaviest of all prices, the blood of our holy big brother, Jesus. And there's a cost for us as well. In fact, all genuine acts of love are a sacrifice to some degree. If it's genuine love, it's costing you something. Maybe it's your dignity. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your desires and wants. Whatever it is, all genuine acts of love are a sacrifice to some degree. Love is the act of laying ourselves down for the benefit of others. To love is to die to self in some way. And unless we're willing to love in this way, selflessly and submissively, we will not be loving our brothers and sisters like Jesus did. The only way we can be called children of God is if we have this kind of love. Sacrificial, submissive, servant-hearted. Unless we extend grace and forgive others and sacrifice what we have to meet the needs of others and devalue the individualistic, consumeristic system of, of persecution that we as North Americans perpetuate every day, unless we seek to replace lust with compassion, jealousy with contentment, bigotry with justice, and judgment with empathy, unless we love all our neighbors as ourselves, then we are failing to live up to the glorious honor of being called a child of God. We are misrepresenting the father we have been reunited with. We are tarnishing the family name. If we don't love like this, we are tarnishing the family name. That's a high calling. That is, those are hard words. And I read 1 John 3, and it's deeply convicting to me. Because I fall so short of that standard. When I read Luke 6, where Jesus says, love your neighbors, or love your enemies, give freely with no repayment. To, to just give until it hurts to people who don't like you, to continually love. When I read those things, that's a high bar that Jesus sets. But unless we're willing to attempt, unless we're willing to be filled with the Holy Spirit so he can empower us to meet that bar, then we have to question how much we are children of God. There's a story in John 8 that highlights this where Jesus confronts a bunch of self-righteous Jewish leaders who call themselves children of Abraham, sons of Abraham, meaning we are descendants of the promise. We are the entitled, privileged, saved ones. That's what they believed. They assumed they are part of God's family. Not just part of God's family, they assumed they were the head of God's family. But since they are so selfish and so proud and so unwilling to love the lesser people around them, Jesus had bad news for them. They aren't children of Abraham. They aren't children of the promise. They aren't children of God, their father. Instead, Jesus drops this bombshell on them. They are children of their true father, an evil, murderous liar named Satan. Their father is Satan. That's what Jesus says to these people. As Jesus says in verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. But since they don't love Jesus, They don't love God, as evidenced by their lack of love for those around them. That's how Jesus knew they had no love for God, because they refused to love the people around them. And those things are the same thing. The only way you show love to God that means anything is by loving the people around you. It's a sobering warning that Jesus gives them, and not just them, gives us. Whose family do you belong to? Do you belong to the Father of Lights, as God is called in the book of James? or to the father of lies, as Satan is known as. It's a terrible and terrifying thing to find out that you belong to the wrong family. 
And I don't say that to scare you on Christmas Eve, Eve. I, I just think that is a warning that I need to hear all the time. It's a terrible thing to find out you belong to the wrong family. But it's a tremendous joy to know that you belong to the right family. The family that loves God and loves each other. It's a beautiful thing to be reunited to your father. To know the fullness of his love and to fearlessly shine that love to the darkness around us. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1-2, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. As dearly loved children, that's you. You dearly loved kids, you. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Follow the example, the loving example of your big brother and love the people around you. Then you will be children of God. And how did all this love begin? In a dirty feeding trough, in a smelly cave surrounded by peasants and farm animals. A tiny, helpless human baby surrounded by love ready to radiate that love to the weary world around him. A weary world that still awaits him today. That baby represents a God who gave up everything to suffer alongside us. A a much greater and more meaningful Maximus, if you will. Gave up everything, willing to risk everything, to fight alongside us, to risk suffering and death, to win our battles, not just for us, but with us. Why? Because he loves us. Because more than anything, he wants us to be reunited with his family, to have all his children together in one eternal home filled with hope, peace, joy, and above all, love. That's his goal, to bring all his children together under one roof. Isn't that a beautiful Christmas image? That's that's our Father's goal. There is no more selfless or more sacrificial or more beautiful love than the love of a parent towards a child. So God the Father became a child to make us his children. Like sharing a Christmas feast together with siblings, parents, and loved ones, Advent is a celebration of family coming together in love at the table of Jesus our King. As a fictional movie gladiator once said, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. Well, let eternity echo with our lives of love, modeled after the one who sacrificed everything to be with his people and reunite them to his Father. Let's close with a prayer. This is a prayer of love from Ephesians 3. So let's pray together. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It is an honor and a privilege to be in the family of God with you, to serve the Father with you. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And every Sunday, I feel so fortunate to be here among you, bringing praises to our Father, sharing the table together. It's just such a beautiful thing. And and I used to do this all the time. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I love you very much, very much. And uh, it's it's an honor and a privilege to share that love with you.
to receive his love and to bring it to our community together. It, it's a it's a beautiful thing, and I, I'm very thankful. So let's let our lives of love echo into eternity together. That's his goal, to bring all his children together under one roof. Isn't that a beautiful Christmas image? Merry Christmas to all and to all a bloody fight.